On this episode of This Week in Linux, there's a brand new release for the Linux kernel with 4.20. The EU is offering bug bounties for open source software, and MIPS has announced it's going to become open source. We'll have a follow-up to the Nikuno mobile topic we discussed in episode 45. Then we'll take a look at some distro news for Scepter Linux, OVOS, and the One Laptop Per Child OS. Then we'll cover some app news from SyncThing, Mix, Darktable, Raw Therapy, KStars, WireGuard, and much more. Later in the show, we'll talk about some Linux gaming news and so much more coming up. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. This is your weekly source for Linux GNUs. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. That's right. First of all, I want to thank DigitalOcean for supporting the show because it helps me devote more time to continue to make the best and most well-researched Linux GNU's podcast I possibly can. And I wanted to clarify something to all of you, the Tux Digital community. Linux and this show are passions of mine. And because of that, I take sponsorships very seriously. That's why I've committed to only allowing sponsorships from companies and brands that I feel are relevant to the content and the channel. And also brands that I'm comfortable with, well, okay, no, excited to promote. And DigitalOcean is one of those companies. So, DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. Or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. Yeah, that's only like 7 tenths of 1 cent per hour. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started with a free credit, uh, actually a $100 credit, by going to do.co slash tux. That's do.co slash tux. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. A first in the show this week is the Linux kernel's release of 4.20 and has been codenamed Shy Crocodile. I like that. Uh, this release contains a lot of uh, improvements to the uh, STIBP uh, patch, which was the single-threaded indirect branch predictors. Uh, this was a patch that was a, a thing fixing some stuff against the Spectre and Meltdown bugs, um, and the um, this this fix was unfortunately pretty big resource drain. Uh, it would be the, the performance was locked down by like up to fifty percent, uh, depending on what it was. So they they readjusted how it was structured so that it was no longer uh, doing on all processes, only like specific processes that are absolutely necessary for it to have, and only when it needed it. And uh, it just made it a lot more clean, so that's awesome. And uh, so that like the fifty percent performance hit is no longer an issue, so that's great. Then there's also been some updates to the Nuvo drivers, and they've got initial support for HDMI 2.0. And HDMI 2.0 is what you need if you want to watch uh, or you know watch movies or play games at 4K displays. Uh, but of course, you're only going to be able to get like 60 frames per second at 4K because 4K is more of like, it's really, ex uh, you can technically get a computer and a monitor that supports higher resolution uh, for 4K at higher frame rate, but it's not very good because it's very expensive because you're going to look at like, the computer has to be a beast. The monitor is going to be like $1,000 just for the monitor itself. You're not really going to get a high-end quality uh, experience with a 4K while also having high refresh rates and stuff like that. So, but anyway, that's not that's not important. That's just a side note. Uh, but this is really cool that they've added some 4K displays as well for the support with the Nuvo drivers. And also, uh, they've been some, they've added some stuff for the rumble rumble support of the Xbox S controller, Xbox One S, I guess technically, one Xbox One S controller, and the Apple's Magic Trackpad. Neither of those things I care about, but it is worth noting because people who are transitioning to Linux might have these peripherals, and it's really good if they have support for them. So that's great. Now, another thing that happened um, uh, for this uh, future release, actually, I want to talk about 
uh, not only the 4.20, but the 4.21 that's coming out because there's some really cool stuff that's coming. One of the things is Raspberry Pi touchscreen driver is being mainlined in the Linux 4.21 kernel that's coming out probably in a couple months or so. It might be at the end of February or sometime in March. More than likely, it's going to be early March, late February. And one other reason that's good is because also in 4.21 is the support for the single on a ch the system on a chip i uh, i.mx8 uh, chip because this is what the the Librem 5 is using. So having support directly in the kernel makes it practical for the imx8 to be utilized in the Librem 5, making it possible for the uh, the shipping date of April 2019 to come to fruition thanks to it, the support being in the kernel. So that's really cool. And if you'd like to learn more about this particular release for the 4.20 Linux kernel, you'll find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show, the European Union has announced a series of bug bounty programs that they're going to do for free and open source software, including many popular applications like the VLC Media Player, FileZilla, Putty, and 7-Zip. So these are these are gonna be it's really cool because it's essentially they use they utilize these pieces of software and they're going to do bug bounties so they're going to be um, giving people uh, basically uh, rewards for finding bugs and, and security issues and things like that to uh, improve the software and overall because it's open source everybody gets the benefit from this 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 effort uh, this is being a part of the free and open source software audit project or FASA that the European Union is doing. So it's really, really cool. And uh, the I'm going to butcher this. I totally, sorry. Uh, but the German member of the European Parliament, Parliament uh, Julia Reda, I think it's close, uh, says that the amount of bounty depends on the severity of the issue uh, that they uncover and the re relative importance of the software. The software projects chosen were previously identified as candidates in the inventories and public survey. So it's for software that's heavily utilized for public usage on uh, different governments and things like that. So as I mentioned earlier, VLC, FileZilla, Putty, 7-Zip, but also Notepad++, Drupal, KeePass, and even glibc are included in this uh, program. There are also so many more. There's a total, I think, 14 ap uh, applications that are part of it or projects that are a part of it. Uh, but those are ones that I think are you know, very interesting that they're doing. Uh, the KeePass thing, I'm, I'm pretty sure the KeePass one is specifically for the Windows version of KeePass because there's only, because KeePass is in a weird situation where there's multiple forks of forks. Um, so I think the one that they're referring to is the specific original one that is Windows exclusive. Uh, but it's still open source, and that's why it was forkable. Uh, but anyway, uh, if this is really cool, and if you want to learn more about this and check out the rest of the applications that are a part of this program, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show, Wave Computing has announced that MIPS will become open source. The Silicon Valley AI startup Wave Computing acquired MIPS technologies in June of last year. And MIPS is the microprocessor without interlocked pipeline stages. That's why they call it MIPS. <laughs> and it's been around for a while, actually. It's been, MIPS has been around since 1985. It's been used in a bunch of stuff, like from supercomputers to even consoles, like old video game consoles, like the original PlayStation or the Nintendo 64, you know, right here. And uh, it's it's interesting that they're doing this because uh, this allows it to compete on a level against ARM. That the only currently thing that was competing in that level was RISC-V, and well, it's the only open source thing. There are some other things like, well, not really. I mean, ARM is pretty much the dominant player in that space of like embedded devices and things like that. So Risk Five is going to try. It was trying to compete with it, and now uh, MIPS is going to be trying to compete with uh, against ARM as well. So that's pretty cool. And from the MIPS uh, team, the Lee Flanagan, Wave's S uh, senior vice president and chief business officer, said in a statement that MIPS Open Initiative is a key part of Wave's AI for All vision. The MIPS-based solutions developed under MIPS Open will complement our existing and future MIPS IP cores that will that, that Wave will continue to create and license globally as part of our overall portfolio of systems, solutions, and IP. 
This will ensure current and new MIPS customers will have a broad array of solutions from which to choose for their system-on-a-chip designs, and will also have access to a vibrant MIPS development community and ecosystem. Now, the interesting thing is that MIPS has kind of been on the decline for a past few years or so. Uh, so the fact that Wave uh, purchased them and pretty much immediately open source their the, the infrastructure of the of the architecture is very cool. Uh, so I look forward to see what happens with it because I think that it's really cool that you know the legacy of MIPS is interesting and also the fact that they're open sourcing it. Uh, you know, especially since you know they just purchase it and purchase it to open source it. That's really cool, and uh, I look forward to seeing what happens. So if you'd like to learn more about this one, so you can see that the initiative for MIPS Open, I'll have a link to their blog post in the show notes. Up next in the show is a follow-up to a topic we discussed on episode 45 of This Week in Linux, and that was the Nukinos, Nukinos, I, th- I don't know, smartphone, and they are now announcing that they're taking pre-orders. Now, we previously talked about them having Plasma Mobile as their, interf- their, their default interface or default structure for their phone's operating system. Uh, based on the blog, the, how they, how they, the way they worded the blog was kind of misleading because while they are focusing heavily on Plasma Mobile, it's not an exclusive thing. They're also supporting other operating systems, including Mamo, Nemo Mobile, and LunOS. You can also order the phone with no operation whatsoever on it if you wanted to. So this particular uh, phone has a chipset of IMX6, which is the older version of the IMX8 that the Librem 5 is going to be using. And we also have some specs- specifications for the Nukunos phone, uh, like 1 gig RAM and Vivanti graphics and stuff like that. Now, the... Uh, it's it's not very high end hardware. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of low end hardware uh, to be honest. Um, but that's that's kind of forgivable in a sense of like a you know open source you know, privacy centric all hard, open source hardware itself is really complicated. So it's kind of understandable in that sense. But Nikino's decided to go multiple steps beyond absurdity, and now I'm bringing it back up because I said I would fo- I would provide a follow up in the previous episode. If you know, there's anything that you know interesting comes out, and this is definitely interesting, not good, but interesting. The Nikinos NC underscore one has been uh, announced to be shipping in March, and you can pre-order it now. But they specifically say this is an engineering unit; it does not have a cellular modem or a SIM card slot, so it's a phone that has no phone feature. Okay. It will ship with your choice of software, including the like the ones I talked about, the open source, uh, the, the operating systems that I previously discussed. Uh, and you are in control of the software running on the NC1, uh, and Nukino Solutions is not liable for any defects or bugs in the software. What? Okay, so it's an engineering, engineering unit. You're not taking any responsibility for the software that you're providing with the phone. Okay, the phone doesn't have a SIM card slot or a cellular modem in the phone itself. Okay, that's weird, but it gets worse. It gets more absurd. So, the phone that is not a phone is also 1,200 euros. That's $1,360 USD for a phone It's not a phone, and it's also not even complete. It's, it's $1,300. The Librem 5, by the way, is currently at $600. They announced that they're going to be increasing the price uh, to $700, I think. Um, but it's still, they haven't increased it yet. They just announced that they were going to. But even then, this phone that doesn't have a phone is still twice as much as expensive as the Librem 5. I, I don't, I, okay. Sure. So, with that said... They also point out that the reason why it's it's kind of funny because it's the it's an insane price. It's more expensive than an iPhone that's complete, and this is not even close to complete. And then you could also argue that yeah, it's an engineering uh, unit or a developer uh, kit or whatever. But at the same time, they also have some weird phrasing around why they don't have the phone structure in the device, and they say. It does not have a cellular modem for security and privacy reasons, so you can be sure there's no backdoor access through it in your device. It's a secure hardware platform, 
but the end goal is for the mobile devices to be fully featured, privacy-oriented, open-source smartphone. Like, okay, what? So it's an open-source smartphone with no phone, and the reason for not having a phone feature is for security and privacy reasons. So it's a privacy-oriented thing that doesn't. Have, but they're also saying it's going to. I don't. I don't know what they're saying. <laughs> Whatever it's saying, it's still incredibly expensive um, in comparison to all the other options, including the Librem Five. So I'm gonna go ahead and probably like set this on the side of no, thank you. So yeah, but if you are interested in checking out more, I'll have a blog post for this particular device in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the distro news section. And up first is Sceptor Linux, or Sceptor Linux, uh, version 2019. There, This is a relatively new distro. Sceptor Linux is a privacy-based distro. It's using Debian testing as their uh, the core base. And they have a the KDE Plasma desktop environment for their, uh, their distro default. And they also come with a lot of tools for security and privacy things like uh, Tor, uh, the Tor browser. They also have Provoxy, which is a privacy-enhancing uh, proxy service. And you can combine that with the Tor browser as well. They also have another one, that another thing called the Ricochet, which is an anonymous instant messaging service or application anyway. And they also have OnionShare, which we talked about in a previous episode of This Week in Linux, where it's about uh, anonymous file sharing. This is a pretty interesting uh, distro because it has uh, very, very up-to-date versions of a lot of uh, like the Linux kernels 4.19. Uh, you know, Debian doesn't have 4.20 yet because it just was released recently, you know, within the past week or so. So the uh, they're not likely to have that version for a little while. Uh, maybe at least not in for like the testing branch. You've got to go into the SID version of Debian and then go into testing. Um, but they also have Plasma 5.14.3, which is the latest version. I'm pretty sure it's the latest version of Plasma. I know 5.14 is, but I'm pretty sure 5.14.3 as well. Uh, they also have support uh, support with Synaptic, uh, GW for the software management, stuff like that. And they also have some uh, extensions for the Tor browser, for Thunderbird, and uh, a lot of different applications that are like, they have extra plugins for these things to enhance their security and privacy aspects. So it's pretty cool that that, that it's uh, it might be worth checking out if you're interested in some kind of privacy-based distribution, especially if you're interested in a privacy-based distribution that runs Plasma. Uh, so there's that for you. And uh, this is the latest version, and they were releasing it on the 1st of January. So it doesn't have uh, forums yet or a support setup system. Uh, so you may want to hold off a little bit if you want to. Uh, you know, get support team. Get us. We want to have their support team set up and everything. But I don't know how long that they're going to take because they haven't really announced anything like that. So uh, either way, it might be worth checking into if you're interested. And if you are, I'll have a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is OVOS, OVOS Linux 3.0. It's been released, and I'm not sure exactly how to say that one. I kind of want it to be obvious. You know, like obvious. I think, I think that would be fun. But I, it's probably not that. Either way, uh, so ob- obvious is a storage operating system based on the Linux kernel with open source software, uh, allowing to create a fully functional, high performance storage server. That's how they describe it. They also say it's a specialized Linux distribution aimed at creating the fastest and easiest Linux unified storage server. They've this particular version is. Uh, a lot of like stability issues or fixes and uh, performance improvements and things like that. For the most part, it's uh, it's it's like a iterative. It's not like an incremental release. It's and it's not just a maintenance release. It is like a lot of stuff been gone into it, but it is uh, it is like a just improving what they already had kind of thing. Uh, they, they have some interesting claims that uh, I'm curious to try it out myself in a way because of these claims, uh, because they say it requires no knowledge of Linux or NFS or SMB, or Samba, or iSCSI protocols to create a fully functional storage server in less than 10 minutes. Simply by following the four steps in the admin guide, you can get this system up and running. Now that's an interesting claim, and I kind of want to try to see if it's accurate or not, Uh, but uh, if it is, that's pretty cool. They also have, um, you know, this is definitely not for everyone, 
uh, because one of the, like they actually have one of these things that are like the four reasons why it's a they they suggested why you should use it. One of those things is lightweight, and when they say lightweight, they go heavily. Okay, heavily lightweight sounds that's a contradiction. So let's go with uh, extremely lightweight. Uh, but in a, in a server structure, it's not necessarily not good to do this because I mean it is this is really what most servers do. It's the the main thing is that they don't have a GUI, so that it just doesn't have a, a GUI whatsoever. The Linux kernel is also stripped down of all drivers and modules not required for a server distro, and also some drivers that are not required for how they implement everything. So that means that there's no GUI whatsoever. So it takes the, you know, some tasks might be more difficult if you're not familiar with this kind of thing. Uh, but for most people who are like sysadmins and things like that, this is kind of what they would expect and what they would want in the first place. So in that sense, uh, it's not for everybody, but if you are someone who's interested in sysadmin stuff like that, it might be you know interesting to you. So if you are check- want, curious about checking it out, uh, OVOS, OBOS, uh, I, I want it to be obvious. I like that. Anyway, you can find a link to the, the, the their website as well as the, the latest release sh- uh, change log in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release for OLPCOS, which is 13.2.10. Now, this actually is based on the one laptop per child. That's what the OLPC means. If you've never heard of this before, it was a system that was created, I think, like 12 years ago. It was a, or maybe a little uh, longer than that. It was a, a, a project or a foundation to create laptops for people, for children, to have like access to or cheap access to laptops and things like that. Now these are these could be you know very they were, very, they were designed to be very durable and they had like really interesting. The original version had really interesting ideas of like having a crank system to power the battery and stuff like that for like third world countries or people places that didn't have a really ac- quick access to uh, electricity and stuff like that. But the latest version is a little interesting because the latest version of the OS is still using the same hardware that was released in 2013. The 2013 version of the XO, which is what this laptop is called, the XO4 in this case, it uses a dual-core ARM system with 1 gig of RAM and 2 gigs of, well, up to 2 gigs of RAM. And it also has a maximum of 16 gigs internal storage with a 3000 milliamp hour battery. And another thing that's weird is that it's because it hasn't been updated in a while, both the software and the hardware, the OS is based on Fedora 18. So it's pretty out of date. They did update some packages and things like that, but they're still, you know, Fedora 18 is not supported by Fedora anymore. So uh, it's a little, it's interesting. Now, another reason why it's interesting is because I'm kind of curious why it still exists when there are other options that are more powerful, much more powerful and arguably probably very similar in price that they should, you know, the OLPC project should collaborate with like the pine book because you get the same arm based system that looks better, looks more modern and has basically everything better. So the reason I suggest this is because the pine book is a 64 bit arm processor. It has four cores so it has a higher gigahertz processor. It has more cores. It's still an ARM, so it's still got ridiculously good battery life, um, especially considering how bi- how much bigger the battery is. The battery for the OLPC, the XO, is 3,000 at the maximum, whereas the battery for the Pinebook is 10,000 milliamp hours. Also, the, 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 the maximum for the RAM of the OLPC, OLPC is the uh, 2 gigs, whereas that's the default for... I think that's the only option, really, but it's the default you get for the Pinebook. Uh, as well as uh, it's the maximum for the OLPC storage is 16 gigabytes, and the starting point for the Pinebook is 16, with a maximum of 64. Now, they both have uh, micro SD slots where you could, you know, upgrade the storage, you know, with that. So, you know, there, there's, there's a benefit. You could make the OLPC a little bit more, but in the sense of the Pinebook, you could have it much better. So... I don't really understand why they would want to use, like, keep, continue using that product. When, like, back in the day when it was first created, it was game changing uh, because there was nothing like it. But now there are a lot of laptops that are competitive in that uh, the price point, as well as the hardware. And the Pinebook, while technically has some issues itself, like the 
the the keyboard is not uh, very fluid like there's some cases where it can can be a little bit annoying but overall for just a hundred dollars that laptop the pinebook is impressive like very impressive so if there was a, a, a you know some kind of collaboration between the pine 64 and the OL, the one laptop per, one laptop per child project i think this would be a very good opportunity to upgrade the hardware you know, get better software running on it, get a more up-to-date software, you know, newer kernels, things like that. I think it would be a great opportunity for them. And I think it would be overall, they would probably cost the same amount of money and they would be able to make uh, the Pine64 Pinebook, um, you know, much more accessible because the one of the reasons why it's it takes a long time for to get a Pinebook is that they only ship them once they have a certain amount ready to go. And if the, old, the one laptop per child project was buying more to... Uh, to facilitate the you know, sharing these laptops, it would make it more more uh, reasonable for the, for the Pine sixty four company to create these laptops quicker rather than you know a couple months wait time, maybe just a couple days or so. I don't know. Either way, I think it would be a really interesting uh, potential, and I think as far as hardware goes, and probably even price, Pinebook would be a better option. So hopefully, maybe they'll see this. Probably not, but you know. It, can always hope. So anyway, if you'd like to find out more about the Pine Book or the One Laptop Per Child project, I have a link to both of those in the show notes. Up next in the show is SyncThing version 1.0 has been released. Now this is a big stepping milestone uh, for the versioning, uh, but most of the time anyway, mo- but this is actually kind of like an arbitrary decision to increase the, 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 scheme, the version scheme to instead of the zero point whatever to the 1.0 uh, now they, they're not it's not like it's like not sta- they're they're changing it to the 1.0 to indicate that it's stable versus that it's a, a big major version so it is it is like very similar to the previous version which they had uh, 0. 0. 0.0.1455 it's very similar to that version almost identical but they tried they decided to bump the version up because of multiple reasons one of those things was the anniversary of sync thing so this is the five-year anniversary, uh, not exactly when they released the, the latest version, but pretty close within like a couple days. So they, they there's ha- this has a lot of some new features and some new bug fixes, but for the most part, the change that they're doing is for uh, to, to declare that it's a stable release now. What are the, the they had a couple of quotes that I wanted to share that I found uh, amusing in one case, and that is uh, much like a black belt in martial arts. It doesn't indicate that you've learned all there is to know. A 1.0 version doesn't mean same thing is done. There's a lot left to do. I think that's a good analogy. I like it. You know, there's, you know, the first degree black belt is only the first step. There's actually, I think there's unlimited black belt degrees. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, they say as much as a version number means anything at all, a major, ver- ze- major version with a zero on it, so like a you know 1.0, 2.0, etc., those typically mean that you should expect breakage. Whereas on this case, it's not really that. They, they're saying we, they're not trying to commit, communicate that. Uh, especially, it's not the mindset that we should have towards our users. So SyncThing is now graduating from being in perpetual beta, like it previously was, to being an actual release software, implying stable release. Yet the journey of development continues. So uh, it's also worth noting that the Android app for SyncThing is kind of in an interesting situation where there is the SyncThing app for Android, and there's also one called SyncThing Tac Fork. And that's another, like, a, it's a fork of the SyncThing Android app. But the weird thing is, the SyncThing Fork app is much more up-to-date than the regular SyncThing app. So the, the SyncThing regular app hasn't been updated since November, like mid-November or so, whereas the SyncThing Fork app was released or updated a new version to support the SyncThing 1.0 just like a couple days ago, like pretty quickly. So within the, you know, very short turnaround time, the Fork app has been, you know, much updated way more than the other one. So like the, the the official one has actually only been, I think it's like four or five versions out of date now. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of interesting. So uh, I don't know if how much that makes a difference as far as usage, but overall, because I've used SyncThing in the past, and I think that the like overall the interface for the Android app is kind of clunky, but for the most part, it's pretty good. 
So if you're interested in finding out more about SingThing, I have a link to the uh, blog post or the forum post for this, as well as the changelog for the release in the show notes. Up next in the show, and to continue on the app news section, is Mix, or M-I-X-X-X 2.0, not 2.0, I'm sorry, 2.2 has been released. If you haven't heard of it, Mix is an open source DJ software. It's very, very cool. Uh, it's, it's very powerful. It's it's a lot of DJs use it. It's, it's not just for Linux use. It's also it's for, available for Windows and stuff too. So it is very popular. And I think that this is a really good update because they've upgraded from Qt 4 to Qt 5, which also means that they could utilize Qt 5's automatic high DPI scaling, which they are. And they've also said that they've uh, vectorized remaining, the remaining raster graphics that were not available in the automatic DPI scaling so that they have you know much better support for high DPI uh, you know, re- resolutions and stuff like that for devices. They've also added a mix mode switch, so you could go from dry to wet modes. I have no idea what that means. Uh, for uh, this, It's for effect. I know it's for effect units, but I don't know the difference between dry and wet, or the dry slash wet versus dry plus wet. Okay. So if, you, if you're uh, familiar with mix, and you know what that means, please let, leave me a comment below and let me know. <laughs> They've also added support for LV2 effects plugins, which is really cool. Uh, so you can have custom effects based on the uh, 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 while doing it live while you're mixing the, the the from one section to the other. You can do effects in between and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. They've also done a lot of up, uh, other improvements for performance and also improvements to the interface, like the library interface, uh, skins and controllers and stuff like that. So if you like, if you're interested in an open source DJ software then give Mix a try. You can find a link in the show notes for Mix 2.2. Up next in the show is Darktable 2.6.0. 2.6.0 has over 1,600 commits since their latest, their last release. So it has a lot of bug fixes and improvements under the hood. Some of those things are a new module for retouching, retouch allowing changes based on image frequency layers. And they've also done a new module for uh, filmic, which can replace the base curve and shadows and highlights and stuff, so you can man- manipulate things a lot more specific and a lot more uh, controlled. They also have a new module to handle duplicates in the darkroom, with the possibility to add a title and create standards for duplicates and delete duplicates and things like that. They've also added new logarithm uh, controls for the tone curve, and they've added a mask preview for the adjust to adjust size and hardness and stuff like that. Now this one, that's probably the most interesting to me um, because adding a, the mask preview is when you add a mask to the thing, before it would it would require you to actually place the mask before you see what would happen. And now they've added it so that it's just an there's a, an, a quick preview before you actually apply the changes, which is very cool. Now overall, they've done a lot of more things like the mask blur. They made it possible to change the cropped area and perspective correction module. A bunch of other things, uh, but I'm going to leave the, the rest to you to check out if you'd like to. Um, I'm not that much of a photographer person. I've used this per, this uh, application in many cases, but I am definitely not an expert in that. Uh, if you would like to provide any, any insight for this particular uh, software in the comments below, I would appreciate that. And uh, Darktable is a very cool application, and if you are interested in any sort of photography and you're interested in doing it on Linux, Darktable is one of the a couple, uh, two, uh, one of the couple options to try out, and it's definitely worth it. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Another application for people who are interested in photography on Linux that, that you should check out is Raw Therapy, and they've had actually had a release of a new release for 5.5, and Raw Therapy provides with a selection of powerful tools which you can you, you can do raw photo development development and stuff like that. It's very similar to uh, Darktable. But there's also like cer- certain things that Raw Therapy does better than Darktable, and Darktable does better things than Raw Therapy. So it depends on what you're kind of trying to do. I'll have a link to a really interesting article about Linux photography in the show notes as well, if you're interested in, in finding out more about that, about the differences of the two and things like that. So this latest version adds the ability to filter, uh, to remove striping of artifacts caused by phase detection autofocus, uh, as seen in some things like uh, Sony cameras and stuff like that. And also the ability to remove banding artifacts caused by uh, Nikon's sometimes too aggressive in-camera correction stuff. They've also uh, added some tools for shadows and highlights, which replaces the previous version they had, a previous tool they had. And they've done some new color toning methods 
for support with Black Magic and Canon Magic Lantern LJ92 encoded files. So if you'd like to learn more about raw therapy, uh, check a link in the show notes. I'll have a link to the raw therapy as well as Darktable and the link to the Linux photography article I found that was really interesting. And uh, they talk about the difference between the two and stuff like that. So I'll have a link to that as well in the show notes. Up next in the show is Gitbatch 0.3.0. This is a pretty new application, but I thought it was really interesting, so I wanted to cover it in the show. And that is, uh, it's a basically it's an Incurse's command line interface for Git. It's kind of like an equivalent to Midnight Commander for Git. It allows you to manage all of your Git repositories in one place fairly quickly. It's written in Go. And the author described it as he says uh, in his post on the GitHub readme, it says, I like to use poly repos, multiple repos, and I often end up walking on many directories and manually pulling updates, etc. To make this routine faster, I created a simple tool to handle this job. Although the focus is batch jobs, you can still do de facto micromanagement of your Git repositories, like add, resets, uh, stash, commit, things like that. So... This latest version adds some improvements to the, the key bindings. They've uh, changed it so it's more uh, com- command line, more relatable to command line stuff. Uh, they've also made it like what's really cool is they've added the ability to do uh, asynchronous loading of your repos as well as multi-threaded pulling for the different, uh, you know, multi-threading. So you have if you're pulling from different Git at the same time, it makes it a lot faster and a lot more uh, efficient. And they've also built a failover uh, mechanism, so if something happens, it will uh, compensate for it. So that's pretty cool. If you're interested in this, uh, there's actually going to there's a video if you want to learn more. I have a link to the GitHub, and on that GitHub is a video to the ASCII Cinema uh, recording of their uh, using of the uh, the application. If you're not aware, ASCII Cinema is like um, of creating videos based on terminal and console usage and stuff like that. That's pretty cool too. But anyway, if you want to find out more about Gitbatch, you can find a link in the show notes. Up next in the show is the latest release, 3.0, for KSTARS. If you're not aware, KSTARS is a free, open-source, cross-platform astronomy software made by the KDE Project. It provides an accurate graphical simulation of the night sky from any location on Earth at any date and time. The display includes up to 100 million stars, 13,000 deep sky objects, all eight planets, eight, (laughs) the sun and moon, and thousands of comets, asteroids, supernova, and satellites. So uh, if you're interested in trying out like an astronomy-based software, uh, KDE makes K-Stars. The funny thing is I didn't even know K-Stars existed until like a couple weeks ago. Uh, it looks pretty cool. Like it, it's, uh, I haven't put much effort into trying it out because I have tried it a lot, but it, like you know, I'm not like doing the automatic, automatic, uh, like simulation stuff. Like there's because um, KSTARS has this thing for students and teachers where it does this adjustable simulation speed. So in order to view like a phenomenon, uh, phenomena happening happening over a long time scale, you can like do an like an automatic uh, speed up simulation to see what happens. Um, like for example, the eventual collision between the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy and things like that. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure if that specifically is available in it, but probably is. But anyway, it's pretty cool. So they've also had some updates to this. This latest version of 3.0 has a bet, a support for the X planet solar system viewer, which is a significant improvement to the built in viewer. It can display high resolution images uh, on of all the solar system bodies. In addition to numerous moons and things like that. And it also has uh, multi-threading, so they've added uh, fits improvement to fits loading and processing, where they are employing various multi-threading techniques, so that you can have large images. Uh, it creates uh, 16 to 32 threads that can currently work on processing the image data, so you can load really quickly very large uh, information. So you don't have to wait for every like every time you change something for it to just kind of, like reload every bit by bit, uh, piece by piece. Uh, the, the, this new multi-threading system makes that much better. So this is pretty cool. If you're interested in checking it out, I'll have a link in the show notes to KSTARS 3.0. Up next in the show is some unfortunate news from TG Tech, or Tony George, who makes a lot of interesting and cool applications that are heavily used in the community. Unfortunately, he's announced that he's no longer going to be using providing these applications as open source. 
In fact, he's going to change them into a commercial license structure. He said, like, he created a blog post, uh, not a blog, but a Patreon post on his Patreon when he was announcing that he was going to close his Patreon. Now, he did say that TimeShift, which is the most popular project that he has, will continue to be open source and free, uh, but the rest will be become commercial applications and stuff like that. So if you're not aware, uh, TG Tech is people, is Tony George who makes uh, TimeShift UKUU, which is the Ubuntu, the Ubuntu kernel uh, update utility, I think that's what it means. Aptic, which allows you to change, uh, you know, store, migrate your data from one computer to another. Uh, Conky Manager, uh, the Polo File Manager, and stuff like that. So there's quite a few things that he makes that are really cool. Um, but unfortunately, he's decided to end his open source work, or at least limit it heavily. So the Patreon post uh, said, uh, I'll be closing my Patreon account by in the end of this month. Thank you all for supporting my work so far. He, by the way, he, he he already closed it. This was from December. And uh, the the $80 that I currently receive a month through Patreon is not enough to help me so to create, uh, but it also creates an obligation to spend more time and release something each new each month. So starting next year, I'll be spending less time on FOSS projects and more time work on provide on things that provides me money income. Uh, I won't be doing any more work for donations as the donations received are too little and is not sustainable. I plan to continue developing applications for Linux, but they will not be f- available for free. They will be under a commercial license. I mean, you, you could also have an open, you could still technically be open source, but the way he's describing it, it's not really. People can purchase it from one-time fee if they have a need to use it. Uh, TimeShift will continue to be free and open source, but uh, future updates will focus on fixing issues and making it more stable. If you need a free license for any paid application that I create in the future, you can drop him in an email if you'd like to. Um, I mean, he didn't really give any kind of requirements to do so, but he says that people who have donated to him directly in previous and projects in the past will receive a free license uh, for the paid version. So if you are a patron, you could automatically get if you just asked him for it. But unfortunately, he's not really given exact specifics of how he's going to do it. Um, but he does say he's no longer going to be working on FOSS projects or spending a lot less time anyway, except for like time shift. So I'm not really sure if he's like completely making it proprietary or anything, or if he's going to do like a model between uh, being commercial and open source, because you can do that. Uh, hopefully that's what he's going to do. Because the thing that Red Hat used to do, for example, was to uh, provide the source code for Red Hat. But you want, if you wanted to use it without paying, you'd have to compile everything yourself, which is kind of where CentOS came from. Um, and then they decided to purchase it because they like Red Hat wouldn't provide binaries, for example. So maybe they could do that way. So the source code itself is open, but the download for the binary is behind a commercial license or something like that. Like that maybe that would be okay in terms of like the open source philosophy. But I'm not. They haven't really said like he hasn't said exactly how he's going to do that. Uh, but hopefully that's what it will happen. And hopefully my statement of it being no longer open source is not true. But based on this uh, announcement on Patreon, it does seem to be like that. So anyway, if you're gonna, uh, like, unfortunately, I can give you a link to TJ TG Tech website, but the post on Patreon is no longer exists, so I can't actually show it to you. But in the video version of this episode, you can see the text that was in it, uh, as there was a, this is a screenshot from that particular post. So if you would like to read it, you can uh, just open the video version of it, and uh, there you go. You know, before I move on, I wanted to address one more thing, and it's kind of like I understand his complaint about the commercial aspects of open source. Like the getting money funding for working on open source projects is really difficult. There's been multiple times where I've contributed to projects where um, I found out that the project has been existing for years and it never really received any donations. Um, and that's kind of, that that I understand the the frustration with that that he must feel. Because it, it does seem sometimes where people just expect that FOSS will always be free, and instead of you know promoting like promoting it and giving people like the a little, like something you know, uh, it's uh, and especially the people who take take for granted the software that is provided. Uh, there's a lot of work involved in these in these projects and stuff like that, and these and these software, and this is not necessarily just from from Tony George, but from like everyone and distros themselves. If you have any money to give to them at all like any extra money especially specifically if it's extra money and you and it's you know just you know spare not if you if you have to pay your bills or anything don't do that but if you if you have spare money to give to these to these projects that you utilize uh, uh like daily 
or, you know, for your workflow and things like that, I would highly suggest that you and recommend that you do so because it one, it shows them that people are using their software because sometimes it's really hard to tell that. Uh, two, it shows that you care enough to contribute to them. And three, you care enough to monetarily contribute to them. So it gives them more motivation to continue. And uh, while in some cases like this particular one, so maybe some maybe a certain amount is not enough, but overall there's a lot of projects that you know any amount would be uh, appreciative. So uh, in the future, if you are if you are interested and you have the spare money, I would suggest that you suggest you uh, recommend I recommend that you sub, uh, give some donations to whatever projects that you feel are useful to you as, as most useful to you as well as your, like your workflow and things like that. So anyway, I just want to put that out there as well too. So, um, yeah, let's go to the next topic. Up next in the show is the gaming section. And first up is super tux 0.6.0. It's been released and it's been uh, released after almost two years of development. They have completely redesigned the icy world and the forest world. Uh, if you're not aware, super tux is basically like a Linux Tux mascot reskinning type of uh, homage platformer to like Super Mario Brothers. It's it's a really fun game if you haven't tried it. Uh, definitely try it out. Like Super Tux and Super Tux Kart are also are both really cool, and they're both re- reskins of like uh, Nintendo based content. So they've also had a complete revamp of the rendering engine, so the game should be much faster than it previously was, and also look much better because of the new engine. And they've now said that they are supporting OpenGL 3.3 core as well as OpenGL ES 2.0, which would allow SuperTux to be run on a Raspberry Pi and potentially, maybe, WebGL so you could actually play SuperTux in your browser. That is very cool. They've also added support for right-to-left languages. So if, you, uh, if you're using a language that does that, it allows you to make, play the game much easier through like the pop-up dialogues and stuff like that. So again... SuperTux 0.6.0. Link in the show notes. Up next in the show is Lutris 0.5. Has uh, a new beta out. That's a big, massive redesign. Well, not massive, but it's a significant redesign that makes it much more cleaner, and it looks much better, too. Uh, if you're watching the... Uh, listen to the audio version, check out the video version. I have a link to... Or actually check the show notes for the link to the thing, but also I have a link, I have a video visual of it if you'd like to see it quickly. Uh, one one of the things that's really cool about it is that if you're not aware, uh, Lutris is a game manager. A, it's a manager that allows you to have one place where you can uh, bundle all your games from various different uh, platforms and stuff to have one single like handy user interface to do everything. Uh, it comes support with options to include Steam, Wine, emulators, and more. They're also building support for Steam Play, so like Proton and stuff like that, as well as now... Uh, they have support for GOG.com, so you can a- install games pretty quickly with that way. So, uh, what's really cool is that they've had they've redesigned the interface, they've redesigned the uh, how to pick the installers for a particular game, uh, and the, the really, what's really interesting is that the latest UI is much smoother, and you can now add some games to your library. Then you can easily download, install, and play the games with just a few clicks of a bu- of a few buttons, and that's very, very cool. Uh, Lutris is a very powerful thing. I've actually contributed to Lutris in the past, like a while back, for some emulation games and stuff like that. I created some installers for them. And uh, it's really cool. Uh, I think that this is something, if you are interested in any kind of gaming, especially uh, like indie games, uh, wine-based games, emulators, stuff like that, it makes it a lot easier to set up uh, games using Lutris. So uh, if you are interested, I'll have a link to Lutris 0.5 Beta article on GamingOnLinux.com in the show notes. And finally this week is Intel is apparently now continuing the Linux Steam integration that was started uh, by the Solus project from Ike Doherty. And the Linux Steam integration, if you're not aware, is a system to make it make, uh, it's a it's intended to make the Steam client and Steam games run better on Linux. Uh, adding some different configurations and stuff like that to make it more seamless and uh, much more uh, efficient. The project basically added some packages and compatibility layers to accomplish this. Uh, So the interesting thing is that since Ike's departure from Solus, the project didn't really have any any work done on the the Linux Steam integration. 
So the last update was from May on that the Solus version of the project. But apparently it's been forked and is now a part of the Intel Clear Linux distribution. So what's really interesting about this is that the new repository is very recent, but it's been it's a fork of the Solus version made by the Clear, Clear Linux distribution. And the latest commits are from Ike himself. So it implies that maybe Ike now works for Intel again. Because uh, he originally used to work for Intel before he went to where he left for Solus. So I don't know if he does or not, but it's interesting that, um, you know, more than likely, based on the, you know, the, the, all, the, all the facts around it, that he does work for Intel again and is working on the clear Linux version of the Steam Linux Steam integration. So, uh, you know, congrats for him to get that, get that uh, maintained and, you know, reinvigorate that because it's a really cool project that I think has a lot of potential for the Linux community. So very nice. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the GamingOnLinux.com article about it, as well as the link to the new GitHub repo for the, the Intel's version of Linux Steam integration in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many more. You can learn more by going to TuxDigital.com contribute. Before we move on to the next section, I wanted to point out that the Patreon thing, there's some weird stuff going on with that, and I'm looking for alternatives. Uh, if, you would, if you have any suggestions, feel free to send a comment or an email and let me know. And also, if you'd like to contribute to the show, you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways to contribute without any extra cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some GNU's to the show, then visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday, not always at the same time, but every Saturday. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.